Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And today is January 12th, 2022. I've got to start to get used to saying 2022. Um, and I am delighted to have with me today two experts, uh, Nuria Oswald and Yael Stein. Nuria is International Advocacy Officer at El Mezan Center for Human Rights. This is the Palestinian human rights NGO founded in 1999 and based in the Gaza Strip. Welcome, Nuria. And with Nuria, we have Yael. Yael is the Director of Research for B'Tselem, Israel's preeminent human rights organization. And we actually had, uh, we had Yael on a podcast, uh, sorry, a webinar last year, um, which was terrific. I'm very, very happy, Yael, to have you back. Um, so I'm also proud to say that Mezan and B'Tselem are both partners and grantees of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We are so proud of that. So thank you, Nuria and Yael, for joining me today. And the purpose of having you join me today is to talk about the situation in the Gaza Strip, including the Israeli policies and actions that define the lives of Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip and the impunity Israel grants itself with respect to its actions toward them. Um, Nuria, I wanna start with you. Uh, a few weeks ago, Al-Mezan issued a blockbuster report entitled, The Gaza Bantustan, Israeli Apartheid in the Gaza Strip. And we'll have a link to that report with the, the text that accompanies this podcast slash video. Um, now the report, I'm gonna quote it. The report quote, considers how Israeli apartheid experienced by all Palestinian people is specifically visited upon the two, two million Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. Um, and it describes Gaza obviously from the titles being um, like a South African Bantustan, even while noting the conditions are actually arguably worse than in Bantustans. So can you introduce us to this analysis and as in you know, what is apartheid in the Gaza Strip? What do you mean? And how is it distinct from discussions of apartheid in, in Israel slash Palestine, whether you're talking from the river to the sea, as some people do, or specifically in the West Bank? Sure, yeah, thanks, Lara. So I wanna confirm at the, at the start um, that Elmisan's finding is indeed that Israel's committing apartheid against all Palestinians. So against those in Gaza, yes, and that's what our um, recent report focus on, focuses on, but also against Palestinians in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, in Israel, in Israel and in the diaspora as well. Uh, and we've been working for years with partners, uh, mainly Palestinian human rights organizations, uh, to flesh out this analysis, uh, including by submitting to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Uh, that's one of uh, the UN's treaty bodies and it imposes obligations on states uh, and to the International Criminal Court. And in that communication, uh, we also focused on the related crime of persecution. So for years, Palestinian voices have outlined how Israel, uh, throughout its ongoing colonization and, and military occupation, has established an apartheid regime that grants people of Jewish faith and Jewish Israelis uh, a superior status to the status of Palestinians, uh, and, and doing so based solely on racial grounds. Now, our current report builds on that work and intends to add to the growing international uh, recognition that uh, is that uh, recognition of Israeli apartheid, excuse me, um, against all Palestinians. Um, now, El Mizan has a mandate that focuses on Gaza. Uh, we have 23 years of, of documentation uh, from our presence on the ground. And so we decided to zoom in on Gaza. 
um, which to my knowledge, no other report has done, and to see how Israel's policies in relation to Gaza meet the threshold for the crime of apartheid. And we started from the point of the closure, um, which is unique to Gaza. Uh, it's the policy that uh, encloses uh, residents uh, in an isolated enclave. Um, it's the policy uh, that led us to draw parallels between uh, Gaza and the Bantu stands of South Africa. But yes, as we note in the report, uh, and according to Professor John Dugard, who we, who we quoted, um, the conditions in Gaza are arguably worse. Um, but it was this the similarity and the forced isolation and, and the, the enclave-like nature of the Bantu stands uh, that, that led us to draw that parallel. Um, we also looked at the uh, Israeli military's regular use of force in the buffer zone in Gaza. Um, that force is mostly aimed at farmers. It's aimed at fishermen um, during the Great March of Return, at protesters. And we looked at the recurrent military targeting of civilians and civilian homes. And this is within the uh, larger scale military escalations like the one that we saw in May, 2021. And we looked at the regular arbitrary arrest and detention of children and other vulnerable groups in Gaza, um, another group being patients who need to access the Israeli controlled crossing for medical care. And we did this analysis through the prism of the apartheid convention and concluded that the practices um, that I've just listed that they amount to what are called inhuman acts. And these are acts, it's conduct that is a requisite uh, part of the crime of apartheid. So along with having an institutionalized system of domination and oppression and an intent to maintain that system. And we argue that these acts are perpetrated for the express purpose uh, of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group being Israeli Jews over another racial group being Palestinians. Uh, and that the laws, the policies and the practices that are implemented against Palestinians in Gaza are from the same institutionalized system of discrimination um, and that they fall under the same intent that makes up Israeli apartheid against all Palestinians. Thank you, that's a great introduction. And maybe when I come back to you on something else, we could talk a little bit about like what the term buffer zone means. So I don't wanna assume that everyone knows that. And if you wanna mention that now, I do wanna ask you as a follow-up, there's this, you know, in terms of distinguishing between the treatment of Palestinians outside of Gaza and inside of Gaza, the report talks about oppression, segregation, and fragmentation, which have specific meanings um, that are different, talking about Gaza versus Area C, for example, or Jerusalem. And I want to just quote this. Uh, it says, while the Israeli government purports to justify the closure and related restrictions under the guise of quote-unquote security, the report will show how these policies demonstrate Israel's intent to separate and divide Palestinians and re-engineer the demographics of the entire Palestinian population in order to assert its domination over them. As part of this, you talk about the overarching goal to dominate all Palestinians. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that works specifically, why that is Gaza being geographically distinct from the rest of Palestine, how it's different there. We have a closure, which is for years, we have military actions, and then we have things like the buffer zones. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the analysis that we've done over the years shows that Israeli apartheid is deployed differently depending on the location of the population and Israel's 
uh, other aims and policies in place in that area. So whereas uh, annexation is, is clearly the aim in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, um, you know, either formal or de facto, um, and the prevention of return um, is Israel's goal for Palestinians in exile, which of course plays into its uh, demographic aims. Uh, it then appears that for Gaza, the goal is isolation and, and destruction. Um, so the Israeli authorities are, are really instrumentalizing the system of apartheid in, in different ways. Um, when it comes to Gaza, Israel first uses the closure, as you said, and the state attempts to justify this policy through a security argument. Uh, but we have to be clear that um, the Israeli authorities can implement effective security measures without resorting to a system of collective punishment, uh, without violating an entire spectrum of fundamental and inalienable rights of the population. Um, it can do so without uh, banning uh, chocolate, ketchup, children's toys, which um, you might remember were on the list of uh, you know, banned dual use items at one point. It can do so without banning fishermen from Palestinian territorial waters, um, without banning, uh, without subjecting patients to, you know, an arbitrary, slow, complex uh, permit process in order to get urgent medical care. Um, I mean, the list goes on. It can do so without prohibiting families from, you know, uniting and celebrating weddings and births together, um, preventing Palestinians from Gaza. Uh, for marrying, you know, Palestinians in the West Bank, for example. But instead, the Israeli authorities uh, enforce this unwarranted and strict closure. And we say in the report, this has to be understood in light of its overarching goal to separate and divide the Palestinian people, um, to fragment them in disconnected territorial and also legal domains. Um, and it does so in order to better administer essentially um, its system of domination. So albeit through different methods of procedure and you know, using the closure, using the buffer zone, which um, we actually more, more commonly refer to as the access restricted area. And it's an area um, in, in the Gaza Strip that uh, Palestinians are essentially unable to enter. It's on Palestinian territorial land. Um, or they have restricted entry and have to get permission and, you know, can only grow certain crops in that area, etc. It actually falls on 35% of Palestinian agricultural land in Gaza. Um, and uh, it also um, encompasses parts of uh, Palestinian territorial waters. And it means that people, anyone who enters that area, could be subjected to the use of live fire, right? It's part of Israel's militarized uh, maintenance of the closure. Um, and so uh, there are different methods of procedure that Israel uses in, within its apartheid regime, but the state is working towards uh, the same overarching goal. And that's being uh, two main factors, to enlarge Israeli territorial control um, and to ensure a Jewish-Israeli majority. Thank you, terrific. And I should mention, since you mentioned dual use, that another organization that we are partners with, uh, Gisha, issued a report yesterday on Gaza and the Israeli regime and dual use as a method of preventing or of control and preventing entry of, of, of basic things into Gaza. Highly recommended. Um, so thank you, Nuria. Yael, let's turn to you. So last year, uh, 
Bitsellum released a blockbuster report on apartheid as well. And we, we did some events around that entitled, um, the report was a regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid. And we'll include a link to that as well with, with this podcast um, slash video. So that report specifically, among other things, discusses Israel's denial of rights to Palestinians in Gaza. So just a few weeks ago, um, around the same time that El Maison issued their report, B'Tselem released a new report focused on Gaza, uh, published together with the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, um, entitled Unwilling and Unable, Israel's Whitewashed Investigations of the Great March of Return Protests. Um, and those protests were, were mentioned just a moment ago by Nuria. So that report analyzes the investigations Israel claims to have conducted following the Great March of Return protests. This is a year and a half ago, um, March 2018. There'll be a link to that report. And, and that those protests and that response um, demonstrate, according to the report, and I think I would agree, what the denial of political rights looks like in this regime. And, and you wrote, um, quote, Israel labeled the Gaza protests as illegitimate before they even began. This reflects the view employed by the apartheid regime throughout the occupied territories, whereby Palestinians are not entitled to political rights, including freedom of protest. So can you talk to the audience a little bit? First, remind us what happened at the Great March of Return. Why are we even talking about this a year and a half later? What went down and, and, and how did Israel respond, which is so emblematic of this regime? Okay, thank you. Um, I also just before I start to talk about the demonstrations themselves, I just want to um, connect to what uh, Nuria said before, because I think it shows what Israel is always trying to hide, that Israel is still controlling Gaza. What happens inside Gaza, not just by controlling the gates and the entry to the Gaza Strip, but also what happens on the daily life inside the, 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 the Gaza itself. I mean, we are talking about demonstrations that were held since um, in 2018 inside Gaza borders. It had nothing to do with Israel, even though before it even started, Israel published that it will never allow those demonstrations to happen. It will shoot live ammunition on people who will participate in those demonstrations. Uh, and again, it's not on Israel's territory. So the fact that Israel even thinks that it can tell the people in Gaza whether they can demonstrate, about what they can demonstrate, what are they allowed to think, uh, I think it's a very good example of the uh, continuing um, the, 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 for, for the fact that Israel is still controlling this area, even though it keeps saying that, oh no, Gaza is a different entity. We, we went out of Gaza, we had nothing to do with that. Um, now the demonstrations were about uh, several things. They were, um, they were about against the, the closure of the, of the Gaza since 2007, about the, the, the horrible conditions that the people in Gaza are still living, about the right of return. Uh, and they were civilian demonstration. They were something different than it was before. Uh, whole families came there. The, the picture from there, I mean, I, I can't go there because again, part of the um, Israeli policy of fragmentation. So Israelis cannot go into Gaza. People from Gaza cannot go out of there. Um, so as me as an Israeli citizen, I cannot go to Gaza. I can see the pictures. Um, but it, it was different than what we've seen before. Uh, Israel got, uh, the, the response of Israel was um, violent, illegal, disproportionate. Um, they, the, um, the policy was, they, 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 they said that. I mean, it's not something that we had to, to discover. It was openly on the news and everywhere. 
they had snipers that had orders that they could shoot demonstrators, unarmed demonstrators from the other side of the, of the fence. I mean, there's a fence that separate between Gaza and Israel. Uh, soldiers who are well protected, uh, armed, just shot, arms, shot demonstrators, civilian demonstrators from the other side that never even had any, they, even if they wanted, they couldn't be of any danger to the soldiers that were, were on the other side of the um, of defense. So I, th I think those, I mean, in those demonstrations, after the, those, um, because of those regulations, the number of uh, people who were killed and injured raised very, very fast. We are talking about uh, more than 200 people that were killed by, with live ammunition, demonstrators, unarmed demonstrators, most of them unarmed, uh, more than 8,000 um, demonstrators that were injured by live ammunition. Um, many people were, I mean, the, the orders were to shoot on the legs, so many of the demonstrators uh, had their uh, legs had to, 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 be, um, to be cut. Um, and all this was, um, it, it wasn't a secret. And I think that this is one of the shocking, uh, shocking things. I mean, we knew that the, while it happened um, and that, that the, it was clear that Israel is willing to shoot live ammunition on unarmed demonstration. These, these were the regulations, which is something that uh, we thought that the minute it will come out, the international community and everybody will be shocked and it will stop quite soon. Um, nevertheless, it continued more than a year and a half. Um, basically, the demonstration stopped mostly because of the, of the, of the corona, of the COVID. Um, and the, the, one of the things that really helped to uh, silence the criticism was the uh, promise of Israel that I, I will investigate. We will investigate all those cases that, uh, that are very, the, the extreme cases. Uh, that uh, people were died, were killed or injured, we, we will investigate. The minute this word is, came out, it, the, the criticism was silenced, which is quite surprising given the um, lack of accountability by the Israeli government to, situate, to similar situation. If you look at what happened, for example, in 2014 in, uh, in the protective edge, in, in the war protective edge in Gaza, um, again, Israel promised they will investigate, they didn't investigate, nothing really happened. So you would think it will, um, people would understand that, but they didn't. I mean, again, Israel promised they will investigate. They, and they, they allowed, the, the international community allowed Israel to continue uh, implement the same policy. Uh, and of course, as we write in the report, they didn't, Israel never really investigated what happened there. So I want to come back to the the investigations, the whitewashing part um, in, in another round, but I want to just follow up and ask you to talk a little bit about Israel's policy of open fire um, when it comes to Gaza, as seen in the Great March of Return. But also we've seen this in the rules of engagement in the various military operations against Gaza um, in the past. And there's been a lot of discussion about the IDF ethos around this. What are the rules? What constitutes a threat? Whether whether every civilian is treated as a combatant, whether every Israeli combatant has the, the status of a civilian in terms of protection or in terms of right to self-defense. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because it seems that Israel has sought to create a whole new set of rules of, of engagement um, different from the entire international community when it comes to how it deals specifically with Gaza. Um. Well, Israel basically thinks that um, 
how should I say that? Um, that there is no limit to what it can do when they claim it is a security threat. Um, now, international law is vague. International law is not always clear about uh, where, when an army can shoot. I mean, what are the situations that will be considered um, um, legal to kill somebody? It's very, and, and it's, it's on purpose. I mean, international law, by, by definition, it's a compromise between states, so it can't say to, to be very specific, but it does create general rules like uh, proportionality, the, the proportionality principle and all those uh, principles that are vague, but and the, there is some place for interpretation. Um, but Israel is way away from the any possible interpretation that any jurist in the world will will agree. I mean, I'm not talking about the um, other jurists in other militaries, but I mean, I mean, jurists who actually uh, look at international law and uh, believe that international law is supposed to make. Um, less suffering as much as possible. Um, and I think Israel is basically, I mean, they, if, if you look at how they, um, how they act and how they interpret it after the war and af how they justify all the killings and all the shooting, uh, basically they don't have much limits. I mean, it's enough that somebody will suspect something um, in, in many cases and they never uh, actually justify the numbers that they, uh, that they um, the, the consequences of the war. Now, if you look at what happened in the demonstrations, um, the, the snipers themselves, I mean, they, they gave interviews. I mean, it wasn't a secret. They gave interviews all around about what were the regulations and what when were they were allowed to shoot. Um, and basically they say that if they saw something somebody suspected, um, they could shoot him. Uh, nobody will ask them after that. Uh, and even if he did something suspicious and then he didn't, so he's still su a suspect and they can still shoot him. They, they are supposed to shoot in the leg, but if they won't shoot at the leg, nothing will happen and they will, nobody will ask them. Uh, and you see this kind of relaxation about what is the meaning of shooting somebody also uh, in, in, in previous wars in Gaza, in, in, in Kastled in 2009 and in Protective Engine 2014. I mean, it's clear that, um, Nobody, I mean, the, the limits, I mean, it's not clear what the, the army thinks the limits are there. Uh, what, when they are not allowed to shoot, it's not really clear because they keep saying, well, we saw something suspicious. The intelligence said that there is something sus suspicious in this specific house. Or we didn't know there is a family that was living there. And that's it. And that, that's the end of the story. Nobody will continue to investigate. So I think that the fact that the, the impunity the, the, that the Israeli army gets that, that we wrote in the last report about the demonstration, it's, it, it's also on previous war. It's always, it's been always been like that, even in what, what Israel is doing in the West Bank, it, it's all over. I mean, the fact that when you shoot against the regulation, when you kill somebody, you ha somebody has to pay the price. Uh, it's, not, um, it's not something that goes in the in Israeli policies, policymakers' head. I mean, Basically, they know, and, and reality proves that they are right, that they know that they can act with almost total impunity, almost 100% immunity when we are talking about the Palestinians. I mean, it's things that uh, we will never see in, in when non-Palestinians are getting killed. Uh, and it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, it's hard to, 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 to accept that. Uh, but, but it is basically like that. I mean, when a Palestinian is dead, 
uh, the, the whitewash mechanism is working so automatically now and so fast, um, unless in very, very, very uh, severe cases, very extreme, um, nobody will, will never have to pay any price for whatever, um, for whatever they did. And I think that the fact that Israel is able to continue working with such, a, such an impunity, uh, accept, totally accepted by Israelis and by the international community, this is what allows it to continue the same policies. It, will, it doesn't have any in, in incentive to actually change this policy or, or, or stop, stop it. Okay, so we're going to get to that in, in just a moment, the question of what, what has to change or what can change. Um, I, I will say watching the, the policies and the actions around the Great March, you know, it's watching the various wars, um, Israel's military activity, and they said it's always security, 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 self-defense. And you can have a fight over whether or not it is self-defense to drop a bomb on a house. And these are these are painful, painful, horrible arguments being made. What happened with the Great March of Return, though, seemed to in some ways even take the mask off that. Um, if the argument is that fully armored soldiers, many, many, many hundreds of meters away are acting in self-defense to shoot the knees of unarmed or armed with rocks and things, protesters, again, at a distance where they can't possibly harm that soldier. Um, it seemed to really just, just, just take them, just, just, just tear the mask off the idea that this really is even pretending to be about security at this point. Um, Nuria, I want to pick up though on, on exactly this point. The Maison report has a section on the Great March of Return and the response, which it, it concludes that the, the actions by Israel may, quote, may constitute war crimes and crimes against humanity. And this fits into a broader discussion about the Great March of Return, the four military offenses over the past 15 or so years, which include, I'm gonna quote, willful and extrajudicial killing, shelling of inhabited homes, targeting of civilians and civilian premises, the use of excessive force in civilian areas without distinction, proportionality or military necessity, and the targeting and obstruction of health facilities and personnel, among other things. And it concludes that these, along with large-scale destruction of civilian infrastructure, blah, 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 uh, are evidence of Israel's attempts to destroy life in Gaza. And by the way, the blah, blah, blah is important too. I just want to get to you talking. Um, so will you talk to us about what it means to understand Israel's response to the Great March of Return as part of a regime of apartheid? Absolutely. So first, I completely, uh, completely agree with uh, the, the analysis of uh, my colleague Yael, um, and I'll, I'll try not to, uh, to repeat too much. Um, but uh, the Great March of Return for us, for, for El Misan, was in essence um, a public uh, collective rejection by Palestinians in Gaza, in particular the youth, of the apartheid conditions imposed on them. So in particular, the, the denial to, um, to leave and to return to Gaza um, and the unlivable housing, electricity, water, you know, um, food conditions that they're subjected to. Um, the march was also a demand, as, as Yael said, for recognition of the Palestinian right of return. And I'll just highlight that, uh, you know, 70% of over 2 million Palestinians in Gaza are refugees that are currently being denied their right of return. Um, it was a legitimate exercise of Palestinians' uh, right to free expression and peaceful assembly. It was non-military, um, and yet Israel responded by, uh, as Yael described, continuing to implement uh, its open fire policy, which 
is a well-documented policy that allows for the use of excessive force against uh, Palestinians. And we documented uh, the, the killing of 217 Palestinians uh, within the context of the march, uh, including 48 children, including nine persons with a disability, four paramedics, two journalists, and uh, you know there were thousands more uh, who were wounded and traumatized. Um, now El Mizan went to court on on some of the cases. Uh, El Mizan, uh, along with partner organization Adala, challenged uh, Israel's use of force policy in regards to uh, the, the Great March of Return. Um, and essentially, uh, the state tried to create a new legal paradigm. I mean, they were doing, you know, legal gymnastics, um, uh, trying to justify their uh, blatantly unlawful use of force against, uh, you know, Palestinian civilians. Um, they tried to create a legal paradigm that combined the laws of war, so international humanitarian law with international human rights law. I mean, it was given very little, uh, no legitimacy. Um, there was one prosecution to my knowledge, but yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and it was in, in a case taken by El Mizan and the verdict was completely derisory, completely uh, inadequate in, in terms of punishment. Um, it was either a 30 or 60 day, uh, you know, community service sentence for a soldier who uh, shot an unarmed child. Um, and Israel, you know, continued to use uh, the deliberate, disproportionate, you know, lethal, unnecessary force that we saw for almost two years. Um, and in our, according to our analysis, it did so for uh, two reasons as they relate to uh, the apartheid uh, framework. Um, so the first being that within the state's intent to maintain a system of uh, oppression and domination, um, Israel's conduct served the purpose of enforcing the closure essentially, right? Preventing Palestinians um, from leaving, preventing Palestinians in Gaza from changing the, um, the paradigm, the status quo uh, in Gaza and ensuring uh, essentially the continued physical segregation of the Palestinian population. Um, Israel's conduct though also served a secondary purpose. Um, and that was to quash any attempt to resist, to combat, to alter the system of apartheid that it places on Palestinians. Um, so the military responded with excessive and lethal force with impunity um, that even the UN Commission of Inquiry that was tasked by the Human Rights Council at the time with investigating Israel's response, uh, largely qualified as unlawful and um, possibly amounting to war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, but how about the legal avenues that Amizan's clients pursue um, in Israel? So I mentioned one of the cases, um, but whether through the civil court system, the military investigative system um, at the Supreme Court to claim their rights, they're also blocked there as well. Um, their claims are also rejected in the venues that, uh, that Israel deems to be the legitimate mechanisms for Palestinian um, complaints. And how about the Palestinian human rights defenders and organizations that challenge the apartheid system using international law or are using international legal mechanisms? They are also targeted um, by the Israeli government with 
orchestrated initiatives to undermine their work, um, including the criminalization of human rights organizations themselves, which we saw recently uh, with the criminalization of, of those six uh, Palestinian human rights and, and civil society organizations. So Israel's response to the Great March of Return, um, it fits into the legal, uh, the apartheid legal framework in that it denied uh, Palestinians in Gaza the rights to life and liberty. And that's one of the inhuman acts um, making up the crime of apartheid. Um, but it also served Israel's uh, overarching strategy to maintain its apartheid system by quashing any dissent um, and any challenge to that system. But that is a perfect lead in to what I wanna ask Gail about, which is I wanna talk a little more about the whitewashing. Um, the argument I think that is accepted, as you said, in the international community, as soon as Israel says we're investigating, they say, okay, we'll be quiet, be quiet, we're investigating. Um, and then investigations, you know, talk about what that means. And, and can you talk a little bit, Nuri, you mentioned, you know, going through the Israeli courts, um, talk about the role of, of the Israeli courts, um, whether in, I mean, not, they're clearly not acting as an avenue for justice, but what does it mean in terms of the courts as a system of, of enabling or helping in some ways along with its rulings actually define what the legal arguments are to allow Israel to do what it does in Gaza? Um, I, I think the whitewash is so um, part of the army already, so it's not, um, it's a process that we have to go through. All the, it, it has to go through all the stages, but the bottom line and the end result is always well known in advance. Um, and the, the, the first step by, of the whitewash is to declare what they are investigating and what they are not investigating. And the most important question, uh, what is the policy? What is the open fire policy? The, the, what are the regulations for the snipers? This is not investigated at any point. And, and it's never like that. It's not even specific to this uh, to the March of Return. We also saw that in previous wars in Gaza, we see, we see that every day in the West Bank, they never investigate the policy. They never investigate those who actually decide what is the, what are the relation? What is, what will be the policy? The, the legal advisors, the very high officers in the army, the, the, the ministers in the, in the government, the prime minister, the, the judges that approve that, all those people are never being investigated. It's not even a question. And the only thing that is being investigated is this soldier on the ground that actually hit the trigger. He's the only one that is being investigated. Although he he doesn't really have a discretion on how to do it. I mean, it's he's not the one who decides the policy. Um, so that that's the 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 first thing to see how they are not really our Israel is not really investigating. Um, and then we can go and see how they're investigating the actual cases, the very, those extreme cases, the very specific cases that maybe somebody did something against the regulations, which are illegal in the first place. Um, so this is not interesting to see what Israel is doing, because it, it is not the right question. It's not what is, what's um, needed to be investigated. And as Noria said before, the only one that was actually charged and actually paid paid some kind of price is one child soldier that hit a child, 14 year old child. And he said that I did that. He, the, the soldiers that was with him said, we, we saw him doing that. Everybody said that it was illegal. And then they say, oh, we couldn't prove the connection between the soldier who actually shoot and the boy who died. 
So we can't actually charge him and he will, uh, they charge him with some very small disciplinary offense and he had to do some um, one month community service and some, something like that. That's the only result for more than 200, 223 Palestinians that died in the, in this, um, in the demonstration. And I'm not even talking about the, the people who, the, the, the demonstrators that were only injured because the, the army even didn't uh, investigate the cases of injuries. They said, we only investigate the killing of the, the cases of, uh, of death. Nobody really knows why, why they decide to do something like that. So, um, um, so we're not dealing with that, but I'm not even, um, I'm, I mean, the, the, the main problem and the main thing is that they are not investigating the policy. Now, one of the things they said, they, they said to justify this, they said, well, the high court approved the regulations, um, but the high court didn't approve in this specific case, the regulation. Now, the high court is totally uh, approving almost everything Israel wants to do in the occupied territories. They approved house demolition, they approved detention, administrative detention, they approved the closure on Gaza, they approved the uh, open fire regulations that allowed killing civilians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in this specific case, what happened is, is quite, I mean, the, 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 the thought that the high court will actually stop that um, on this background is, is it, it's not practical. And the high court will never will never intervene in these in, in, in cases like that. And the high court cannot be conceived as a protector of human rights when we talk about Palestinians. Uh, and in this specific case, what the high court approved is the regulations that the state said to the, the judges that they applied. Now they, the courts, the, the states came to the court and say, okay, we tell the soldiers to shoot only when they, their life are in danger. We, they only, the soldiers are only shooting in cases where they do not have any other option. Um, they told this story. Now the judges said, okay, so the regulations are legal. We, the, they didn't even see the regulations. And they said, okay, that's legal. Now we know that demonstrations are being killed. We know that we, we see the news. We know that there are cases of um, unarmed civilians getting killed and injured. So you will investigate that. That's, we, we leave that to the investigation. Now we know how those investigations go. So what the high court actually said is that, okay, you can continue with this policy. We will, we will, uh, we will uh, you, you can do whatever you want. Um, which again, proves how the, the court system, the, the Israeli court system, the high court is the highest court. If the high court said that, of course, the other court will, will uh, say the same, um, that the, the courts are not, a shield for human rights violations when we talk about Palestinians. They, they act totally different when we talk about cases inside the green line. Uh, we, when we talk about Palestinians, it's a different situation. So Palestinians cannot find, um, cannot find protection by the Israeli court system. Thank you. And I just, I, while you were talking, I pulled up the B'Tselem report from January uh, 30th, 2020. We'll have a link. Um, which notes that when you talk about the you know, Israelis, we're not going to investigate people who are just injured. We're talking here about 155 amputees and 27 paralyzed. Um, so we're talking about not um, minor minor injuries. These are life-changing injuries in addition to people who've been, been killed. Uh, I want to shift the focus now. We're getting to the end of this podcast. I want to shift the focus to sort of looking ahead. We've talked about violations. Let's talk a little bit about opportunities, remedies, rec recommendations, requirements for change. So, Noria, I want to come to you first. Al Nezan observes 
<laughs> among other things. I'm going to read this. The Israeli legal system, this is very much what Yael was just saying, the Israeli legal system has played a significant role in ensuring that inhuman acts described in this report are committed with impunity and deny effective access to justice and reparations to victims. Um, that, that, that Israel has long imposed substantial restrictions and obstacles in uh, impeding Palestinian victims' access to justice, reparation, remedy, and, and remedy for Israel's violations against them. So what do you, what would you and Mizan, uh, El Mizan view as the most urgent recommendations for the international community, whether you're talking here about the UN or individual governments or corporations, for example, uh, you know, business and human rights, um, or even the ICC. And I want to mention you dropped into your last answer. You mentioned the six, and we've done a lot of programming. But for people who are not aware, at the end of last year, Israel designated six major human rights organizations in the West Bank to be terrorist organizations. They have yet to produce any evidence of this. The evidence or the arguments that have been produced so far are really um, guilt by association at six, you know, six degrees of contamination because of alleged relations, um, political affiliations to the PFLP. Um, but we now have the six major groups that operate in the West Bank um, existing still with this, this sword over them of having been designated terror organizations. And one of the through lines between amongst those organizations is that they have sought to challenge this impunity, including providing evidence at the UN or for the ICC. So with that as the introduction, Maria, back to you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we focused our conversation today on impunity um, because it's, it's the system of impunity that Israel maintains that allows um, these apparent uh, crimes and, and violations of international law um, to continue. It, it really is impunity that's, that's the driving force of, of this entire context that Yael and I have been describing uh, today. Uh, and so it really is the key word, you know, accountability is the key word when it comes to recommendations and, and solutions as well. Um, so as I pointed to, El Mizan's been engaging with the Israeli justice system for a long time. We've been doing so in good faith uh, on behalf of victims and survivors and, and, and their families. Um, and the outcome of that work is conclusively that uh, the Israeli justice system is primarily geared towards shielding its troops, towards shielding its military commanders, towards shielding uh, its government leaders from accountability, uh, from criminal responsibility. To use the terminology of the International Criminal Court, our work shows that Israel uh, is unwilling or unable to act. Um, this is what Yao has been describing as well um, from the perspective of Batsalem. So our asks, of course, focus on accountability and I won't repeat the list, um, but at the top is of course a call on states to, to recognize, to acknowledge uh, Israeli apartheid um, and to ensure that the system is dismantled. Um, of course, lifting the closure, ending the occupation, um, and, uh, you know, supporting the independence of the ICC while it conducts its investigation. There's also a call on uh, the ICC to include in its investigation the crime of apartheid, the crime against humanity of apartheid, and also um, of persecution as well. Um, we also have recommendations to impose individual sanctions. So, you know, travel bans, asset freezes, 
on suspected perpetrators of, of recognized international crimes and grave breaches. Uh, that's a recommendation that was from the 2019 Commission of Inquiry uh, mandated, by, mandated by the Human Rights Council, um, a recommendation to condition arms sales and military and security assistance on Israel's compliance with, with international law and human rights norms. Um, but El Mizan was not recreating the wheel with our list of recommendations. Um, the mechanisms for addressing Israeli apartheid all already exist. Um, and the venues that can deliver accountability and justice to Palestinians, whether at the state level um, or at international institutions, those are already in place. The problem is that they're not being operationalized for political reasons for Palestinians or they're being impeded. Um, for the same reasons. And this has to end. Uh, international law, rules and procedures have to be implemented uh, you know, as they were intended without exceptionalizing Palestinians. Um, they have to be implemented according to the letter and intent of the law. And um, these international institutions and mechanisms have to be allowed to do their work essentially according to their mandates, according to international rules and procedures. So that's our overarching recommendation, kind of zooming out, you know, to use effectively the tools that we already have. Thanks. And I'm going to recommend that everyone actually read the report itself because it is a superbly written and, and really compelling report. And then they can read all the recommendations there as well. So we'll have that link uh, with this with this podcast slash video. Yael, I want to ask you to more or less address the same question. I'm going to re I'm going to quote your report. The Batalan report closes with this. True policy change will come only when Israel is forced to pay a price for its conduct, actions, and policies, when the spokescreen of domestic investigations is lifted and Israel is forced to reckon with its human rights abuses and breaches of international law. It will have to decide openly admit that it does not recognize Palestinians as having political rights and as deserving, deserving protection, and therefore has no interest in accountability for violating Palestinians' human rights or change its policy. So those are the final words of the report. So what has to happen, in your view, for the smokescreen to be lifted? Who can or who must intervene? And can you address um, the, the role of the ICC, which I think for a lot of people following this issue is seen as the worst idea or the only uh, and best idea? Um, I, th I think I, I want to say two things. I mean, first, uh, of course, as Maria said before, uh, all the mechanisms are already there, including the ICC. I mean, the legal mechanisms, uh, for Israel for to, to end the, the impunity of Israel are all there. Um, but the I think that it's not on it cannot be only on the legal level. I mean it's not a legal question only. Uh, and Israel is acting for years with total impunity. Uh, everybody knows that. Now it has this um, uh, yeah, I'm of course, I mean, Israelis keep saying, of course, I'm investigating, of course, I care about human rights, of course, I care about international law. It doesn't. It just doesn't. It has to be clear. Um, and Israel has to decide and stop playing this game. Uh, if you want to play the game, it has prices. And the fact that Israel is not paying any price, not on the legal level, which is much more complicated, but on the political level, the international community should and must come to Israel and say, you cannot continue making all these uh, human rights violations and not paying any price for that. Israel is now a well-accepted uh, country in the, all the, the, the strongest world, uh, countries in the world. 
Uh, it has these very generous economic agreements all around the world. The, prime, the Israeli prime minister is a very uh, welcome guest in, in many countries. Now, these things has to change. Israel has to pay some kind of price for these illegal policies that it is being applying for in the occupied territories for more than 50 years. I mean, we are, it's not something temporary. It's not a temporary occupation that is going to end, that the famous Israel democracy that is having on its side this temporary occupation, this is not what's happening here. We are talking about one regime, one apartheid regime in all the territory under Israel control that Israel is applying with um, con convenience. I mean, not, nobody even... Uh, say anything against that. And those who said about that, and if you dare to say the ICC, if you dare to say international community uh, should act, I mean, this is something that is not, is not acceptable. And I think that as long as Israel is not paying any price, not, nobody demands some kind of price, it has no incentive to stop these illegal policies. So some kind of price, whether by the ICC, whether by any country, whether by the international community, some kind of price has to be um, demanded from, from Israel if we want this to, to end. Thank you. And I think that's a great place to end. Um, I, I want to take a moment and just thank both of you for your work and for your organization's work on the ground. It is, it is so important. Um, and these are, it's always challenging, but at a time when the work of the human rights sector is being directly attacked by the Israeli government, um, I, I think it's really important for us to recognize that work um, and it, how vital it is. So, so thank you for that and to you and, and all your colleagues. Um, thank you both for sharing your time and analysis today. And thanks to our listeners uh, for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content about Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and you can also watch video versions of the podcast, including this one on YouTube. Um, and with that, I'm Lara Friedman signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.